drop your sword. <laughs> Next, there we go. Okay. So, I know. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we thank you for today that we could gather here to hear from you. And we pray that's exactly what would happen. That the words I speak would not be mine, but would be your Holy Spirit moving in and through this place. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're starting a new series today called Drop Your Sword and How to Read the Bible Without Hurting People. You see, so often we've, Scripture and the Bible and religion have been used as a weapon to hurt people. They call the Bible the sword. And they go, oh, I can use this to stab people and beat them over the head and make them feel guilty. And we do it. Now, this idea that the Bible is the sword is, that's the best way to understand it, a misapplication of Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, where it says, the sword of the Spirit is the word of God. And we go, oh, the Bible is the word of God, so therefore it's a sword. But that's not what happens. You see, in John chapter 1, it says the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. The word of God then is Jesus. Now, it's the Jesus as revealed in our scripture, but this becomes ink on a page. The true word of God then becomes the Jesus we experience, the Jesus that we know is revealed in the scripture, but still Jesus. And so, so often, what happens is we take this and we go, oh, you know what? Here, this verse says you don't get tattoos. Oh, and you have a tattoo. That's it. You're done. I'm going to use this to hurt you and beat you down. Back in the time of slavery, slave owners would take the Bible and they would take out the passages and, and literally rip them out of the Bible of all the things that say people who follow Jesus are called to freedom. They would take out verses about how Jesus sets the captives free. And then they would take that Bible and they'd hand it to their slaves and say, see, God wants you to be a slave. Or they would take the book of Philemon, which talks about slavery, and say, see, God clearly approves of how we are oppressing you and destroying you and beating you and forcing you to work without pay. See, this must be okay. They would use this to hurt people. They would use it. And we still see it today where we use religion, where we use scriptures, we cherry pick one or two verses out of it and say, you know what? This is the one that we're going to use to hold you down and keep you back. That's not what scripture was ever designed for. Now, the hope of this sermon series today is kind of an overview. In the next few weeks, we get into some very specific topics of how scripture has been used to hurt people. But I do have to ask a favor, and I didn't ask this morning and didn't realize I needed to ask it until this morning. Let me finish. <laughs> Don't jump the gun on me. I promise. Let me finish. That's all I'm asking. I say that because if we're going to say that this is not the sword and that Jesus is the sword, then what is this? What is our Bible? What, what does it have to do with anything then? If you have your Bible, I will encourage you to turn with me to the book of 2 Timothy, in chapter 3. It says, Every scripture is inspired by God. It's useful for teaching, for showing mistakes, for correcting and training character. 
so that the person who belongs to God can be equipped to do everything that is good. This is our scripture. This is our, our holy text, as it were. And it is designed to be useful for teaching, for showing mistakes, for correction, for training in character, so that the followers of God are trained to do everything that is good. Now this has a couple of implications. When we say it's inspired by God, that means it might have a couple of typos and errors in it. It's not inerrant. There are things in our scripture that are flat out wrong, which we'll come back to that in a minute. I'll show you that in a minute. But that doesn't mean it's not useful. It's still all of it. Every page, every verse, every chapter becomes useful for teaching like this or teaching in Sunday school or vacation Bible school or at home around our family dinner table. It all becomes useful. But its design is to equip us to do everything that is good. So if we were to take out a section of this and use it to do something that is not good, we are acting outside of the design of Scripture. We are acting outside of how God inspired it to be used. We are acting outside of what we are called to do. Now, I mentioned that there are parts of our Bible that are wrong. Which this morning, you could hear the audible gasp when I said that. At the 8.30 service, you could see, how dare our pastor say that? But I'm going to prove it to you. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. In Matthew chapter 1, now this seems very boring and dull piece of scripture, but that's because we are reading it a couple thousand years after it was written. In Matthew chapter 1, it is the list of people related to Jesus. This family tree. Verse 17. There were 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 generations from the exile to Babylon to the Christ. This makes sense. Okay. Matthew is writing this. He's telling us what it is. Seems wonderful. On the surface, it's perfect. Until you start looking at it. The, second, or the third section, from Babylon to the Christ, starts in verse 12. If you count it, there's only 13 generations. There's only 13. Some of you are counting it right now. I can see it. How can there only be 13 generations when Matthew wrote there are 14? The oldest manuscripts of this text that we have Matthew counted wrong. Why? No one really knows. But it's wrong. You can't have 13 and 14. It doesn't work that way. But it gets even weirder when we start to look at this. In verse 13, Zerubbabel to Joseph. That spans 500 years. There are nine names listed. Now, you might go, well, people lived longer back then, so that makes sense. Until you look at Luke chapter 3, which has the same list, but there are 18 names. How can there be 18 names in one, 9 in the other, and still have 14, or still have 13? This doesn't make sense. 
It does not compute. You can't jive that. It's wrong. There's an error in our Bible. But it gets even weirder. In verse 8, Joram was the father of Uzziah. Now we look at this and we go, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Until you look at the list of genealogies in 1 Chronicles chapter 3. To go from Joram to Uzziah, Uzziah, there are three more kings in between. They're missing. What? Why would it be listed in Chronicles when Matthew leaves it out? How does that make sense? Now Matthew was a Levite priest before he became a tax collector. And as a Levite priest, he knew the, the old, he knew it. He would have had it memorized. Every word, he would know those kings go there. You wouldn't leave them out. And yet he got it wrong. Why? Now, if we're going to say the Bible is without any errors, we have a problem. Because here we have errors. We have things that should be there. So what happens? Well, this is where we have to take and say that all scripture is useful. Every page, every chapter, every verse. When you look back at those three kings that are missing, the first one says, did evil in the eyes of the Lord. The second one, it says, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than the first one. And the third one says, was the most evil and wicked of all three of them. Okay, why would they be left out? Let me ask you this question. 2,000 years after this took place. How many of you have family members you'd really rather forget? No one. Everyone loves their family. Okay. This morning I had one guy raise his hand. These three kings that are here that are missing were considered the most evil kings in all of Israel who did the worst. And yet they would fall in the line of the genealogy of Jesus. But sometimes we have family that's just toxic, and we want to do everything we can to forget we're related to them. Maybe you know that you've sat at that dinner table at Christmas. You spend all year avoiding that family, and then you have to go to Christmas dinner and see them. If that's you, Jesus knows how you feel. His legacy involves three of the most evil kings in all of Israel. He wanted to leave them out. He knows how you feel when you don't like some of your family or the decisions they made or the directions they've gone. He knows that. Sometimes we say that Jesus doesn't understand what it's like to be in 2019 and modern day world because he doesn't struggle with the same things we do. Jesus had family he was ashamed of that he didn't want to be known to be related to that got left out. Now, if all we do is take this one section of scripture and we read it, we go, oh yeah, Joram was the father of Uzziah. It makes perfect sense. And it looks like Jesus has this perfect family tree. And everything wraps up into a nice, neat little bow because he had a perfect life and perfect family all the way back. Turns out he didn't. Turns out there's some skeletons in that closet too. And that when we struggle and we wonder about our own family and what's happening, Jesus knows exactly how we feel. Now, this idea 
of Scripture is filled with this. If we're going to say it's useful, these kinds of things are all over the place. That is precisely what makes our Scripture inspired. It is precisely how it comes alive. It is precisely how God speaks to us. But only if we take and we read and find all of it useful. No one finds Chronicles to be exciting. No one finds Numbers and Leviticus to be exciting. But it's still useful. It still is teaching us. We never would have known about Jesus' family and past if we hadn't read it here. This idea of the Bible being filled with Easter eggs and hints and nuances is all over the place. When Jesus is presented in the temple, in the book of Luke, it says that Mary and Joseph made a sacrifice of two turtle doves. And we might read this in 2019 and say, oh, that's very quaint. They were following the Jewish law and, and presenting these sacrifices. But to a first century Jewish person who would hear this, it would immediately bring to mind the expansiveness of who God is and what God understands. You see, in Leviticus, there's a rule that a firstborn son, when that son is firstborn and first presented in the temple, you provide a sacrifice of a lamb and a turtle dove. But then the very next verse says, if you can't afford the lamb, you can get two turtle doves. Then we see that Jesus was presented with two turtle doves. Mary and Joseph couldn't afford the lamb. They couldn't afford what was expected. Mary had to look at the God born in the flesh for us and say, I can't afford this. If you've ever been a parent, if you've ever had to look at your children and say, I don't have the money for that, you know what Mary felt. Jesus knows what it is to be raised broke. He knows what it is to be raised with a stepfather in the family. Jesus understands what we go through. When we struggle, when we go to the store and have to buy diapers for our kids and we realize just how stinking expensive they are. You know, okay, I can't afford the name brand. Jesus understands what's happening because he lived it. But these are nuances and things that we might miss if we're not reading the entire of Scripture. If we're not taking it seriously, that all of it is useful. Some of it is boring. Some of it is hard to understand. At one point in the book of Jeremiah, the king is having trouble sleeping. So he calls for his advisors to bring him Scripture to read to him that he might fall asleep. They read to him Numbers. Our book of Numbers. Another place, Peter, in the book of 2 Peter, is writing, and he goes, Paul's scripture is really hard to understand, but it's still scripture, even though I don't understand it. So what does this have to do with reading the Bible without hurting people? The first piece is we have to actually read our Bible. If all you're doing is coming to church and reading your Bible, when I tell you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 1, you're missing so much of the scripture. You're missing 
thousands of years of history, you're missing the words and the instructions that God has left for us and inspired for us. So we have to be reading our Bible regularly. Now I will tell you that we should read our Bible every single day. I will also tell you I'm lucky if I get four days a week. But regularly is the key. Whatever it is. I'm currently reading through the book of Joshua. I just started it last week. Um, Because when we read it daily, we're able to connect with the God of the universe who inspired it for us. Now, when we read it, we need to read it with some sort of a plan. I guarantee you, if you start in Genesis 1 and try to read to the end of Revelation, you can do this, but it gets really boring right around Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's a little tough to read. That's a little dry. So if you find yourself with a plan of how to read it, it becomes much easier to grasp. Now, I use a Bible reading plan on my phone in an app called Our Bible. You can use that, and they have ones that are different topics. I also put one on the back table. Actually, Lisa, our secretary, put one back there because she's amazing. But it is a year-long Bible reading plan, and you can read through it every single day and check it off, and it guides you through. And if you follow that plan for three years, you will have covered 95% of the scriptures. It's pretty good. Whatever plan you use or however you do it, what matters is that you do it. That you read through this text. It also means we read it from a place of asking God, how does this train me for every good work? How is this training me as a follower of Jesus to do the good works? What does that look like? If we're saying that's what this is designed for, how does what I've read teach me that? We, add, we read it with an eye towards the questions. What, what, what is happening here? What's going on? And we ask those questions. I'm a firm believer that Christianity and the way of Jesus is the only way to eternal life. What that means, though, is that that has to stand up to every single question that I have. If I find a question that Christianity can't take or can't function, then suddenly it has stopped being a functional relationship. Christianity is strong enough. The Bible is strong enough. Jesus is strong enough to take whatever question we can throw at it. Now, we might not get an answer. We might not always get an answer. But we can still ask the questions. Now, I need a volunteer for the next part. I need a volunteer. I'll call on somebody if I don't have a volunteer. All right, Chase, come here. Herein lies the part where the hurt comes in. You can have two people who read the Bible, who study it for a lifetime. Stand over here. I won't hurt you. I promise. I don't trust you. You shouldn't. (laughs) You're carrying water and... Don't worry. You can have two people, well scholarly, that have studied their entire lives the scriptures, and come down on two very different sides of scripture. Two very different opinions, two very different ideas. What happens so often is that we decide to stake our claim and we say, this is it, this is what the Bible means, this is what scripture says, and this is it, and everybody else is wrong. And then Chase does the same thing, a little less animated apparently. There you go, he stakes his claim. Now what happens 
is he staked his claim, and I've staked my claim, and nothing happens. This is where we start using our Bible to hurt people. Well, if you knew what I read, if you were reading the same Bible I was, it says don't get tattoos, and here you are. Now we've just hurt people with our scripture. But 2 Timothy says the goal of scripture is to train us for doing good. So even if he has a different opinion than me, if he honestly came to it through searching the scripture, then there's nothing we can do about it. It was never designed to create division. Our response is, you look thirsty. Here's some water. (laughs) Our response is instead to do good. It's sealed, so you can drink it. This is actually my water. Is it your water? (laughs) It is water from downstairs in the refrigerator. You are well. Don't. I don't want it back. Do you want it? I don't know. Go sit down. (laughs) I'm going to drink it. I'm thirsty. Yes, drink it. It is for you. Our call and how we use the scripture and how we approach it is to train us for doing good. That even if somebody we vehemently disagree with is thirsty, we offer them the water. We were never designed to take and use our scripture to separate us and decide who's in and who's out. Instead, it was a call to train us all for doing good. That when someone is in need, we say, here's some water. Someone's hungry, we say, here's some food. When they are hurting, they hear the shoulder. It's in there that we move beyond using scripture to hurt people and instead using it to do good and to bring healing, which is what Jesus did on his ministry on earth. It's there that we go beyond a surface level reading of scripture and cherry picking verses out. It does say, don't get tattoos. The Old Testament says, don't get a tattoo, and you should not. But then there's another verse in Isaiah that says, God has your name permanently written on his hands. God has tattoos. So we have to take all of that into connection. Why would God say, don't get tattoos, when God himself has a tattoo? Because at the time when that verse was written, tattoos were a sign of slavery were a sign of marking yourself as belonging to someone else. And the God of the universe says, uh-uh, it's not how this goes. I rescued you, brought you out of Egypt where you were slaves. I bought you with a price. You are no longer your own. You are now to me. Now fast forward 2,000 years and people get tattoos of dogs and bananas and Christmas trees and whatever. Is it still a sign of slavery? Do you get a tattoo of a banana on your arm? Are you now slaves to bananas? I use that as an example because I had a conversation yesterday with someone who has a tattoo of a banana on their arm. I don't know. The answer is no, it's not. It means something different now. So it's not as big a deal as it was. It is, it is not the sign of slavery that it once was. But the idea that we are called and bought with a price by God is still true. So the things that would connect us and enslave us to someone else or something else, that part we still don't want to be because we are owned by God now. So maybe there's a, a way of interpreting this, 
a way of looking at the whole of scripture which is useful for everyone that doesn't hurt people. Because scripture was never designed to hurt others. Let us pray. Dear Jesus, we confess that we have at times used the Bible as a sword and have hurt people. Forgive us of that. Remind us that we ourselves are not perfect, but that you have called us anyway. That any time we would try to hurt someone, remind us that you have forgiven us, you have redeemed us, and you have done the same for those we would try to hurt. We pray that we would read the scriptures with an understanding of how you are using it to call us for every good thing. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would stand and sing with me Spirit Song, which is different than what's in your bulletin, but it's page 347 in your hymnal. Thank you. 